From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He was fired as superintendent of one of Colorado's largest school districts. And Corey Wise now says his dismissal from Douglas County Schools was illegal because it was retribution for trying to protect students' civil rights. We'll discuss the complaint he's just filed with both the state and federal government. Plus, what he makes of polarization on school boards. He frankly has more questions than answers. How we take out some of the non-facts, some of the things that are meant to get a story or meant to get elected. Then, with the primary ballot now set, a clear rift has emerged among Republicans in key Colorado races. There's a candidate who is not pushing the election fraud story, and there's a candidate who really is. So these primaries will come down to who votes. Perspective from Purplish. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Controversy continues to plague Douglas County Schools, the state's third largest district. There have been pitched battles over masks and over a plan to make Dugco more equitable. Now, the former superintendent has declared his intention to sue over his firing. Corey Wise says his dismissal was sudden, irregular, and illegal. Retaliation for advocating on behalf of students of color and those with disabilities. Wise will join us shortly. First, some context from CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Ryan. Walk us through the legal landscape. How did the district end up first in a lawsuit over masks? If you remember, Douglas County formed its own health department last year. In October, it issued a health order that allowed kids to opt out of wearing masks. And the district said, wait a minute, that could potentially violate federal civil rights law. If we enforce that order, we won't be able to give students with disabilities access to district programs and services. So Wise and the district, along with nine other plaintiffs, successfully sued the Douglas County Health Department and the Board of Health. The federal court agreed that the order discriminated against students with disabilities. And while some parents, of course, appreciated the effort to protect their children, the lawsuit ignited a firestorm of protest among anti-mask parents and inflamed tensions. And this led to a group that called itself Kids First to run for school board on an anti-mask platform, and by the way, against the district's new equity policy. What was that election like? Remind us. This election was very contentious and one of the most expensive in Colorado. We had real estate developers, businessmen, attorneys. They gave large double-digit donations. The masking issue was certainly a focal point of the Kids First Slate. Various Fox News national shows featured members of the Kids First Slate, and that attracted interest from national Republican donors. Then you had groups like FEC United and the 1776 Project Pact, which support school board members willing to promote patriotism and pride in American history. They back 
backed the kids' first candidates. And this race became one of the most watched school board races in the country, really. This new board was sworn in, quickly dropped the mask mandate. What did they do with the equity policy? Well, first, a bit of background on the equity policy. It was passed last year. It was meant to foster an inclusive culture in the district to make sure that all kids felt safe and valued. And it was principally designed to reduce cases of racism and discrimination in the district. Kids First argue that the policy itself was racist for suggesting that racial inequities exist and alleged it creates a system of oppressors, that is white people, and victims, people of color. They attacked the anti-bias trainings the district conducted. So once in office, the four board members passed a resolution requiring Superintendent Corey Wise to recommend changes to the policy to reflect the new resolution. And that resolution eliminates all mention of diversity and replaces it with language like, we should promote our common humanity. This was around the time when the board majority started expressing doubts, at least privately, about Wise. They ended up terminating his contract. How did that happen? The board president and vice president met with Wise at a coffee shop where they gave him an ultimatum, resign or they had the votes to replace him. The board minority caught wind of this and they called a public Zoom meeting to expose the secret meeting. Finally, a special official board meeting is called. It lasted nearly three hours with no public comment. There were at times desperate pleas from the minority members and from Wise himself, but they fired him. How did students and staff respond to his termination? They were really angry about what had transpired. Wise, if you remember, he was a teacher, a principal, a district official for 25 years. He was beloved by many, and that was a word, beloved, that they used over and over. The anger was high because of how he was treated, but also because of the way the decision was made in secret. All of this led to more than 1,500 teachers calling in sick. That shut down schools. Teachers, students, and community members held a rally outside of district headquarters. And shortly after that, students themselves, they held walkouts. Okay, before we hear my conversation with Corey Wise, is there anything else we should know about the Douglas County school situation, Jenny? Yes, there was a lawsuit filed, and it alleged that the four board members had engaged in private one-on-one meetings to decide to oust Wise. Uh, That person alleged it was a violation of Colorado's open meetings law. A judge agreed, and he prohibited the four board members from having one-on-one meetings to discuss school board business privately. Shortly after that, the board set out looking for a new superintendent. In the course of a few weeks, it hired uh, someone called Erin Kane. She's the ch- a charter school leader in the district and was interim superintendent of the district for a couple of years. Her hiring was also controversial because many alleged the board majority had already selected her before Wise was even fired. Board President Mike Peterson acknowledged that he talked to her about the job well before his discussion with Wise about wanting a new superintendent. And we should also note that Wise's removal has led to other departures. Uh, For example, we have a well-known, respected uh, district official. He oversaw special education and several other departments. He left 
And the district's chief financial officer just resigned. She wrote in her resignation letter that when Wise was fired, she began to question whether her values, which center deeply around equity, would would have a place in the district. All right. Thanks for that perspective, Jenny. I appreciate it so much. You're welcome. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine, who's covering the tumult in the Douglas County School District, which, by the way, has some 65,000 students. As we said, former Superintendent Corey Wise intends to sue over his firing. He's taken a first major step, filing a charge of discrimination with the Colorado Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Mr. Wise, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Tell us more about your discrimination and retaliation claim. How do you think you were discriminated against? The number one thing I want to get across is when you look at the work that I and we do as educators and as a superintendent, it's to provide a safe and quality education for every single student. And in our process through COVID and with the Douglas County Board of Health public health order, we couldn't provide a safe environment for our, our most chronically ill, and we have to protect those at risk. And the ADA that, that is if there were unmasked yeah. staff and children. Yeah, and, and we couldn't protect them. So as we go through and you have a lawsuit, which even backs up the need, not only the legal need, but doing the right thing and standing up for those who need extra uh, protection and support uh, is critical. The judge ruled I, in your favor. Exactly. And you know, on the other end, uh, when you look at the equity policy, equity policy is to look out and represent each and every individual. We have students that are underperforming, and we need to help that. We have students on IEPs. Uh, we have students of color. Our black students have performed lower than others, our uh, Latino-Hispanic students. And so we need to address that. I think when you look at those things of standing up as a leader and as a district and doing my job with board policy and work, um, that's the retaliation and the infringement on rights. That's not okay. That is to say, you think that the pursuit of those policies and those ends is why you were fired. Doesn't a, a school board and a newly elected one with a, a bit of a changed mandate have the right to say, well, we thank you for your service in those regards, and we'd like to move on now? We all have to work with the laws and civil rights of others even the case of any termination cause or not cause. In this case, it was termination without cause. But violating my civil rights when I stood up and we stood up for those students who have disabilities, ADA, uh, those students who are most at risk is not okay. So the idea is that the work you were doing, the nature of it and the nature of the students for whom you were doing it, that is protected to some extent. Correct. And that protected status and my work advocating and standing up for uh, those students who have protected rights and those employees who have protected rights is critical. Those are the violations. What should the board have done if they disagreed with you? First and foremost, you know, I've been a part of the Douglas County School District for over 25 years, 26 years. This is your, you, first of all, you attended Douglas yeah. County School. No, actually, schools. I didn't attend. I, I grew up as Aurora Public School oh, student. Aurora. And, okay. Uh, okay. And, but I student taught uh, at Ponderosa High School and then became a teacher at Ponderosa way back in 96. And so when you work over your time as a teacher, then assistant principal, then a principal, and then at central office, we've gone through a lot of boards. Board elections happen. Boards will change. A superintendent needs to be able to work for different boards and different individuals. So coming in with a new board, it's my job to work with them, but it's also their job 
to work with the school district and the superintendent. And I think you have to make sure you're clear in expectations. When you're doing the work and you're getting positive feedback up until uh, the time where they set up a meeting with me, and then within a week later, uh, set up a special meeting and in their meeting with me, state that they have made up their minds, they have their discussions and and so forth. You know, that's not the right way to go about it. And it, it so, felt like a done deal, in other words, absolutely. by the time you learned this. Yeah. So the, the board president, Mike Peterson, and Vice President Christy Williams asked you to meet for coffee. Did you have any, you, I suppose you had no idea what that coffee would be about. That was a unique meeting. Uh, to call and set up a meeting and to set it up in person when he knew and we and I had informed him that I, that I was going out of town PTO my wife for family piece that's different than when you have the meeting and and what was said uh you know there was pretty clear ultimatum of what they wanted and what they had talked and agreed upon and what they and wanted was the your de- your departure is what they wanted yeah it was we want you to resign we want you to resign when do you get back tuesday night we want to know by tuesday night effective wednesday if you don't we're prepared to terminate and we feel we will go for cause and we have a case and short meeting, but very clear in expectation and ultimatum. So what was the timeline? The meeting took place on a- Friday, Friday, Friday. morning, 7 so, a.m., probably done by 7, 12 a.m. Turns your life upside down. It's, it's a, I've never, never experienced that before. I will ask you more about the effects on you personally in just a bit. Um, the board members have publicly stated a variety of reasons for your firing, including a lack of trust in you, and what they say is your inability to make decisions. Had they brought any of those issues to your attention before? No. In fact, you look at board meetings, not ever brought up in board meetings. So everything up to that was positive. Um, to hear it after the fact, uh, as I said to you, I'm confident in the work. I don't think there is cause or would have been cause. And they had their chance and, and terminated me without cause. So I it's not okay. And, and the termination has an impact on my retirement and my family, but these inaccurate statements and the reasons why, now it impacts my career and my longevity and, and, and your reputation, yeah, presumably. Darn right. When the four new board members were elected, they'd run on a campaign of letting parents decide whether to mask their children. Uh, they expressed deep concerns about the district's equity policy. Did you have an idea election night or the day after that you might not last as superintendent? Was that a thought that had entered your mind? You know, I think anytime you have board majority change, that always goes through your mind of what are they thinking? They said they're going to give me a chance. They said that uh, uh, they weren't going to make change. I think the work that when, they When did put they in, tell you that? Well, they said it in their elections. They said that in their interviews once they got elected, and and they made other comments on that. And you took that to heart? Yeah. The four set up a meeting with me before they, they got sworn in. So once you get sworn in, you can't meet in more than two. So prior to it, they even met with me, and they asked, uh, about where do I stand? about open meeting requirements. Yep. I see it as an opportunity. I work with boards, not one board, but when any one member changes, the board changes. It's my job, my responsibility, my duty, my obligation to work with the board. And it was an opportunity. When you have four that get elected in, you need to build that group together. And when you have constituents representing them, it gives us an opportunity to build it forward as a district if we choose to do that as a group. You no doubt had some awareness that they were concerned about the equity policy and might make modifications. Would you have been willing to negotiate what that plan looked like under a new board had you stayed? 
I think you always try to find win-win. I would not be willing to break the law. I'm not going to discriminate against others. When you read the equity policy, it is to be intentional, to be systemic, to make sure that we don't discriminate, to make sure that we create an inclusive environment for students, to make sure we look at, at, at the achievement and growth and to address it and improve it. For employees to create a culture that is non-discriminatory, that is positive, to hire and recruit employees of color, and to also look at compensation. So a lot of this was not negotiable for you, I hear. You know, I hope what you hear from me is I've tried to be myself throughout my entire career and not just say things, but see those actions that back that up. That's going to continue. The work that we're putting forward towards equity, the policy really makes it intentional and purposeful. You come back and monitor and you improve it. Honestly, the, the polarization and the infusion of CRT and words of, of CRT, uh, villainizing and, 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 and tearing it apart and ripping down the right work, um, you know, that's a bigger movement and push. And I, and I think when you look at the platform of running on, you know, it's not accurate. And it also uh, tries to be about adults and bigger systems than what we're doing by people and schools for students and employees and what's best in each situation. The board president and some other board members have referred several times to what they say are practices in some schools, classrooms that divide students into oppressor victim groups by race, schools that have students participate in an exercise to define their level of systemic oppression. It's been called an intersectionality score. To your knowledge, is any of that happening in Douglas County schools? So a couple of things I'd say. I think we always tackle relevant topics. To say that we divide and go to oppressor oppression, we, we victimize, um, I would like to see them bring some reality to that. They're making these statements. I have not seen that. What I see are great teachers and students interacting with content. I, I would love for them to really give and, and show specific examples. I, you have I, yet to see them produce that. Yeah, I've not. Uh, I see it as a way in which to intimidate, to build fear. The charging document says you suffered significant emotional distress after you were fired. Tell me how it affected you. Hmm. I want to stay longer. I wanted to be more than uh, just three years. Let's look at four, five, six, and see where we go. So when you go into a meeting and you hear they're, they want you to resign or they're going to terminate you, it throws your life upside down. Loss of sleep, fear, anxiety, reflection. Uh, it's an interesting process. Then when everything happens, it continues. You don't have a job. Things aren't given. Um, you know, I'm so appreciative to... Uh, to Jefferson County, what a great school district, and also to be able you're to You're in Jeffco in. Yep. Schools now Correct. Yep. as a community superintendent, yep. I think. What is the outcome you want? Hmm. Is it to make one-termers of these school board members? Is it to make sure that the equity policy continues on a strong path? I, I, is there even compensation involved in this? Like, what, what, what is the perfect outcome for you? Yeah, this is where I'm going to keep being me in this. Challenges are a part of life. Douglas County School District is where my career has been, so it's a part of who I am. It's in my heart. We've gone through this, and we've all said we're not just going to be quiet. Um, we need to stand up for what's right. So I think what I want in this is to call out those uh, illegal and wrong actions, get past the elections that are about sides that is divisive, and how do you build forward and set goals and plans and measure that so you are moving from good to great and have a level of excellence and have those actions that back it up, 
that aren't always pulled by agendas and groups. And so I think that's what I hope for. I'm an idealist. So you, you um, want so. something clearly on the record from a judge saying this was wrong. That's what I hear you saying. And that that maybe sends a message to other educational circles. Yeah. Do you want money for your suffering and for what this might have done for your career? You know, none of this. We don't get into education about money. This isn't about money. But I will say it's not only the emotional impact. This has an impact on my life. I need benefits for my family, health benefits, to have a career. Um, You need income. Even just my retirement impact over 30 years is substantial. So their decisions aren't just about me as a person or a job. Uh, The ripple effect of trust emotionally, career-wise, my family, what what everyone goes through, and the school district and all the people, it's about all of that. And it capitalizes. And reality, that's more the question for them. As they make their decisions, do they understand their responsibility and the magnitude and impact of their decisions and what that can do? In recent weeks, other school districts, like Colorado Springs District 11, have parted ways with their superintendent, voted to do away there with its uh, Department of Equity and Inclusion and the preliminary budget, allegations as well in District 11 of racist comments from board members. Nobody was fired in this situation. But can you fix polarization and politicization of school boards, or is that cat out of the bag? So again, I, I told you, uh, I'm an idealist. Uh, I believe in in hope, and I believe in setting a plan to meet those goals. So I would like to say we can fix that and be perfect, but I think it's ongoing and there's there's always going to be changes and adaptations. But I think we can all be better. How we take out some of the the non-facts, some of the things that are are meant to get a story or meant to get elected, but we have to get down to how do we take care of each other and how do we help each other be better rather than turning things apart. We can go in and rip down any person or organization. When are we going to start finding how we're more common, how we start building up and how we build together? Well, so um, I hear those yeah. questions being raised. I don't hear that you necessarily have the answers or the path. Uh, if any of us had the answers, uh, we'd be in great shape. But I, I will say this. Individuals can have a huge influence. We start getting a collective piece, and that's where you see great change and impact. Do you see this potential lawsuit? Again, this is a complaint. It's kind of a pathway to a lawsuit. Do you see it as a way... To send a message about the effects of polarization? I don't know. I think I need to represent myself, my family, and what's right, and represent all those individuals that I want to value in this. Uh, You know, you look at the number of people who are positively supporting me, and uh, the outpouring of support, it's humbling. you know, the, the employees, the, the community, the students, the cross the street, even the nation. So I really see it as it's representative of how do we get better. So in some ways, yes. But I also, in reality, um, I'm willing to be that leader, obviously, to step in as a superintendent during COVID. It's hard to be in education. It's hard to be a superintendent. Then you do it during a COVID. I'm willing to accept the largest challenges in the most difficult of times. But I'm also humble enough to say it's not about an individual. It's about a we, and uh, and there's probably others a lot better at that. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, I appreciate the time and, and uh, opportunity, so thanks for your work. Former Douglas County School Superintendent Corey Wise, who alleges in a new complaint that he was terminated illegally 
The school district has not responded to CPR's multiple requests for comment. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a wartime Passover. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's High School Athletics Authority wants to have an esports team in half of the state's high schools. But even with the growing popularity of esports gaming, it's taking extra effort to get teams off the ground. If we hadn't provided those things from our own homes, we wouldn't be able to compete on some of these games. Meet the gamers pioneering esports in Colorado and see the ways it's about more than video games at CPR.org. An American rabbi who recently escaped from Ukraine with his family will observe Passover in Denver tonight. Israel Silberstein draws parallels between his journey and the ancient story of Jews escaping slavery in Egypt. The Passover holiday celebrates redemption from tyranny. That was our story. We escaped from tyranny, from bombs, from war. Silberstein has relatives with connections to the Chabad Jewish Center of South Metro Denver, which raised the money to bring his family back to the United States. For 12 years, Silberstein led a congregation in the town of Chernyachiv, northeast of Kiev. When the war broke out, Silberstein says his family sheltered in their basement, along with some of his neighbors. When we got the opportunity, we took our children and escaped a long Difficult journey, first to Kiev, from Kiev, then the Moldovian border, and then eventually to Romania. And to Turkey, where they caught a plane to the U.S. Rabbi Silberstein is now working to help others escape Chernyachiv and to get food and water in. Meanwhile, Rabbi Avraham Mintz, who leads the Chabad Center south of Denver, says when Rabbi Silberstein and his family gather with the congregation at tonight's Seder, It will bring both the war in Ukraine and the meaning of Passover closer to home. Here we see it again in such a real way with who we believe in 2022. You would see people being treated the way they are for just so senseless and so, uh, you know, painful to see. And obviously, you know, we can't even imagine those going through it. Hopefully we can not just remember Passover and the Exodus, but relive it and try to find ourselves in the story. And hopefully, you know, good will triumph over evil And, you know, people of all walks of life can celebrate their God-given freedom. The family will stay in Denver for the next week or so. The parties have picked candidates for their biggest races ahead of the June primary. CPR's public affairs team was at the Republican gathering this past weekend to hear what the grassroots is fired up about and to see whether their concerns match the messages coming from GOP leadership. Let's join Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland for Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Colorado's statewide primary ballot is now set after the parties met for their assemblies to select candidates. On the Democratic side, all the incumbents are running uncontested. But for Republicans, things are a bit more lively. We sit today in a room full of Republicans, a room full of friends, and a room full of warriors. 
Close to 4,000 Republican delegates gathered in Colorado Springs to winnow down the GOP field for U.S. Senate, Attorney General, Secretary of State, and Governor. We will abolish critical race theory and the sexualization of our kids from public schools. They were there to choose candidates, but in talking to delegates, it also felt like a culture war revival where you could hear some of the most common fears and frustrations and even conspiracy theories that are circulating on the right. Our schools, what we're teaching the kids, the kids are our future. They want to kill the ones that, that aren't even born. They want to take the guys that are currently born and, and convert them to something that they're not supposed to be. They want to tell an eight-year-old that, well, if you feel like being somebody of the other gender, that's okay. They're, the kids aren't even old enough to understand that. I'm appalled. I'm appalled. And many in the crowd also have a deeply held belief that the 2020 election was stolen from former President Donald Trump. And they have a desire to see Republican candidates do something about that. I want to hear what they have to say if they will come out and speak about election integrity. That's a huge one that a lot of a lot of the candidates seem to be avoiding that subject. And I want to know, do they or do they not feel that the election was stolen in 2020? The concerns of these grassroots Republican activists are shaping the field of candidates who may eventually win office in Colorado and shifting the identity of the party itself. Every election is a chance to see how politics in Colorado are changing. And this assembly this past weekend and the upcoming primaries, they're going to show that nobody quite knows what changes are still going to come. Today, we're going to raise the curtain on the 2022 election, and particularly on the June 28th primary. Who's on the ballot? What forces got them there? And what's at stake for Colorado? And to be really clear, we're focused in this episode on just a few races. There's the U.S. Senate primary, where Republicans will choose who goes up against incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett, and also the contests for two statewide offices in particular, governor and secretary of state. But first, let's just start with how this whole process of getting on the primary ballot works. Yeah, how does it work? There are two routes. A candidate can get onto the ballot either by going and gathering petition signatures from voters, and you get enough and you qualify and you get on the ballot. Don't have to go to the assembly necessarily. Or candidates can be nominated basically by the grassroots of the party by showing up at this assembly and convincing enough delegates to vote for them on the floor. It's very dramatic. Those are the options. Yeah. And the assembly process actually begins with these precinct caucuses, which are very small kind of voting blocks in your neighborhood. Yeah. And that's where people who are really involved with the party typically get selected Mm -hmm. as delegates. And then they they move up through a series of meetings and finally end up at the state assembly where they do get to vote on the candidates they want to see on the ballot. Like I was saying earlier, it takes support from at least 30 percent of the delegates who are voting to get onto the ballot at that assembly It can be pretty tough to do depending on how many people are competing with you to get onto the ballot. In some of these races, there are quite a few candidates. And for both Republicans and Democrats, the delegates at these assemblies come from the more ideological extremes of the party. So what we saw this year on the Republican side, a lot of the more moderate candidates gathered signatures and petitioned on. So they did not go through the assembly. Yeah, because they didn't want to basically face the farther right part of the party and get shut down at the, at the assembly necessarily. 
So we're going to zoom in, especially on that Republican assembly, because they're really the party with the most contested races, and because we heard a lot of interesting things while we covered it that really speak to some of the choices that Colorado voters are going to be making this year. So funny you should say Zoom in because oh, no. uh, because Democrats held their state assembly remotely oh, no. <laughs> on Zoom. Uh, it, it didn't bring many surprises. So let's just go over it quickly before we get back to the Republicans. Sure. Democrats right now hold every major elected office in Colorado, and they just chose to, unsurprisingly, put all of the incumbents back on the ballot unopposed. So we have U.S. Senator Michael Bennett, Governor Jared Polis, Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, Attorney General Phil Weiser, and Treasurer Dave Young. I told you there was a lot of these guys. <laughs> All of them are seeking re-election. None of them have any primary challenger. Now it's official. So the assembly went pretty quickly, um, just a couple hours. And Andy, what do you think of Democrats you know, doing this remotely, their decision to be virtual this year, even though we're not at the height of the pandemic? Well, I think it might have been more of a topic of debate if there were more contested races. I think that if you are trying to challenge an incumbent and get on the ballot, that's going to be a lot harder to do in a virtual environment where you can't Mm -hmm. go recruit support. You can't go roam around the floor and, you know, you can't do a lot of in-person politicking. But obviously it went very smoothly this time because they honestly have a lot of (laughs) controversial business to settle. Yeah, that's true. It was quiet. We didn't cover it. We were at the GOP assembly, which was that same day. I talked to a few Democratic lawmakers who didn't attend either. Uh, Democratic Representative Daphna michelson Janay decided to go to a conference in Washington, D.C. instead. She said had it been in person, yes, she would have been there. I think the fact that it was done remotely could be to our detriment, just from the fact that people are so tired of Zoom. And I understand, um, you know, our cases are rising and we're still trying to figure out that how do we live with COVID thing. So I don't blame the party. I just, you know, if I had my druthers, it would have been in person. Again, to her point, these events can really energize grassroots volunteers and activists. It's a way to get in the same room, form alliances, etc. And it's just hard to imagine, yeah, so getting a Zoom private DM invite and being like, yes, this is the beginning of a new political movement. So there's a lost opportunity there, I think. But on the flip side, having this virtual quiet assembly means there there was more attention on Republicans. And for a lot of Democrats who believe the right flank of that party is vastly out of, of the touch. the Republican Party. Yeah, vastly out of touch with Colorado voters, too extreme. They've already been campaigning on that. Maybe that's to their benefit. I, I talked to Democrats, plenty of them. They were just sitting back and watching what was happening with Republicans, and I think they were more than happy to do that. Shifting to the Republican State Assembly, where the real drama happened this year, no lie. it set up primaries in some key races. And this will give voters a clear choice between a more establishment Republican and someone much farther to the right. Quick note, Republicans can participate in the GOP primary and unaffiliated voters can choose to participate in that primary as well. So let's start with one of the big races we are watching, U.S. Senate. That's one where... The day began and there was pretty big field. Like there was already one candidate, Joe O'Day, who had petitioned onto the ballot, gone the other route and secured his spot. My campaign's directed at Michael Bennett and replacing him in November. 
and I'm going to stay on my campaign. It's Joe Day. I'm about working Americans, I'm about supporting our police, supporting our military, and cutting back big government. And that's where I am. He's more of a moderate business world type of candidate. And then at the assembly, you had a whole bunch of people all trying to win that support, all in this kind of do or die moment where they had to get at least 30% of the delegates support to get on the ballot. And we found out the results. Yep. In the end, only one person made it on the ballot at the assembly. State Representative Ron Hanks. Yeah, it was a bloodbath for the other candidates. It's one of those places where you can really see that the choices at the assembly are really driven by the right wing of the party. Because Hanks is really far right and notorious among some for his stances, especially on election stuff. Right. Yeah. Hanks is in his first term at the state house, and he has made false claims about Dominion Voting Machines, and that's a Denver-based company. He has made these claims the centerpiece of his campaign for U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and just quickly, for people who may not be familiar with it, Dominion is at the center of false theories that this voting machine company rigged the election for Biden. I fully expected Donald Trump to win in 2020. And he did. Thank you. I expected him to be draining the swamp in D.C. while we fought to turn this state back toward liberty. When we saw what we saw on election night 2020, it changed everything, just like the changes we felt after 9-11. My mission as a state representative shifted to election integrity. I have been fighting for it ever since, even before I was sworn in. And so Hanks at the assembly really just crushed his opponents and showed the power of that message, the election message. Moving down the ballot, the next big race is the governor's race. And that's another place where what was this big, huge field going into the assembly has now turned down to just two Republicans who are hoping to challenge Jared Polis. We have CU Regent Heidi Ganahl and former Parker Mayor Greg Lopez. Both survived the assembly with a little bit over 30 percent. Lopez scored more delegates at the assembly, so he was a little bit more popular with the grassroots there. Ganahl is seen as the establishment candidate. She is the only Republican to win a statewide election in almost eight years. Yeah, that's actually a point that she made in her speech. It's lonely. I need help. (laughs) I stand before you today as someone who, and let me be blunt, gets bleep done. I stand before you today as a mom on a mission who won't back down. And I stand before you today battle-tested and ready to send Polis and his I-know-better-than-you attitude back to his safe space in Boulder. Who's with me? She kind of avoided a lot of the more inflammatory cultural issues that other candidates hit on. And instead, she talked about really herself as a woman who survived a lot of adversity, the death of her first husband, removal of a benign tumor recently, and saying that she has what it takes to go up against an incumbent with a huge personal fortune like Jared Polis. Lopez took quite a different approach. Yes, he talked about the economy and inflation and and all of that, but he also got into parents' rights and schools and talked about gender issues, voter fraud. We the people want fair elections. It is time we clean out our voter rolls and stop the ballot harvesting. It is time we go back 
to counting all ballots by hand and get rid of the Dominion machines. That's going to be another one that's similar to the matchup in the Senate primary where a much more establishment candidate, Heidi Gnall, who talks about, you know, cutting taxes versus a farther right candidate who's way more willing to embrace all this stuff about sexualization of children and fears of transgender people and what they're doing to society. And uh, we're going to see just how far right the GOP electorate wants to go. This all kind of brings us to one race that's usually a bit lower profile, but it's already getting a lot of attention this year, Secretary of State. That's because Tina Peters, who maybe you listened to our last episode, it was about her. But in short, she is the Mesa County clerk, and she's been indicted on multiple charges related to a breach of security that she caused at her own office, which she said she was doing in order to uncover evidence of Widespread voter fraud, which, of course, has not been presented, has not been proven. And she won more votes than any other person in a contested race at this assembly. So she got 60 percent of the votes from delegates. And, Mm. you know, it was a little bit like, you know, she was the celebrity of the day. Benta, it was the first time I think I've ever heard an assembly hall full of people chanting the name Tina before. But in spite of that overwhelming support, there actually was another candidate, Mike O'Donnell. He's an Australian immigrant with a business background. He's also pushing conspiracy theories, and he made the ballot alongside Tina. And meanwhile, there's a third candidate from the other route, the petition route. That's Pam Anderson, a former clerk who defends the election system, who says that we have a good election system. I think one question going into all of this about Peters was how much support does she really have? (laughs) And this proves that her actions so far and her message is really capturing a certain part of the electorate and goes pretty deep into the grassroots conservative base. Yeah. It's not something GOP leaders can ignore or wish away. Yeah. Uh, not long ago, the head of the Colorado GOP party asked Peters to suspend her race for secretary of state. Because she's been indicted. And here she is on the ballot. I talked to one of those delegates who's a big fan of Tina Peters, Her name is Gina Daly. She's a first-time delegate. She's from Douglas County. And she said the whole issue of election integrity is why she got involved in Republican politics. She supports Peters, and she wants others like her to get elected. We're, this is like grassroots. You start at the bottom, and it builds all the way up. And if we're going to make a change and reel people in, get rid of the rhinos, and put the people that we need in there, we've got to have this kind of outcome for voting, getting people in at the at the bottom and bringing them all the way through. Tina Peters is very much a face of that distrust of public elections, but it's run so deep in the party that you actually saw extreme mistrust and, and like a revolt among the delegates about how the GOP was running the elections at its own assembly. It was the first thing we heard that day. There was a motion to have the delegates vote on paper ballots, which the party didn't have. Yeah, they were using these electronic clickers instead. So after multiple motions and votes and stuff, that eventually failed. Some people were still upset that they weren't voting on paper. Yeah, I heard that from delegates. And then you heard it to an extent afterward when gubernatorial candidate Danielle Neuschwanger, who had narrowly missed the ballot, 
confronted state chairwoman Christy Burton Brown. Christy, I'm going to see you in court because you're not listening. Votes did not count today, and they attempted to tell you that the system was fraudulent. And you negated their voice when they attempted to bring it to you. You know what? Time is of the essence. It's ridiculous. So you know what? I'm going to see you in court, and I'm going to make sure if you committed any fraud, that you are behind bars. You have a wonderful day. I'll say that Christy Burton Brown did get control of the assembly. She convinced a strong majority of delegates not to go with the whole idea of using paper ballots, which would have been a crazy mess. But that's going to stick around. Like This is what Donald Trump sowed and what the party is now reaping is doubts even about their own internal elections. This whole situation is tough for a lot of Republicans who see a real opportunity this midterm to make significant gains in the state for the first time in a lot of cycles. And if the party chooses candidates like Hanks, like Peters, who try to sell this message that the 2020 election was stolen, some strategists and Republicans think, look, we're basically then handing the election to Democrats. Mm. Um, I spoke with Wayne Williams. He's on the Colorado Springs City Council, and he's a former secretary of state. I do not believe trying to convince the 56% of the state who voted for Joe Biden that they didn't vote for him being a viable strategy. I do think it's a viable strategy to say, you made a mistake, let's rectify that mistake. Williams encapsulates what we hear from a lot of other Republicans, that they really want to focus on other issues beyond the 2020 election, issues that they think can appeal to a much broader swath of the electorate. And to recap, that's a choice that voters have in each of these races that we've talked about. Senator, governor, secretary of state. There's a candidate who is not pushing the election fraud story. And there's a candidate who really is. So these primaries will come down to who votes. Who will the electorate be? Will it be mostly the grassroots side, the far right folks who come out and choose who the general election candidate will be? Or will there be a lot of unaffiliated voters who come into the Republican primary who don't believe in this stuff? and who pushed the party to choose a more moderate candidate. So some final thoughts here. We've talked a lot about these candidates, their supporters. What final big takeaways do you have leaving the assembly? Well, I talked to probably a dozen delegates or so, and I was expecting to hear more about inflation, more about sleepy Joe Biden, more about traditional election year stuff. And what I heard much more often was that the greatest motivators were fears about change, fears about what the left was supposedly doing to culture, doing to gender, doing to elections. It was a a, a very culturally reactionary message to fears. It wasn't the economy, it wasn't Reaganomics, it was issues about transgender people and abortion and stolen elections. And and what was really striking to me was... How, how remarkable it was, really, that how little the Republican delegates were talking about the top issues Republican leaders in the state want to focus on. Schools, affordability, crime. Not that I think those are things a lot of the electorate aren't focused on, but mm-hmm. this is a very small group of the Republican Party. I mean, it's a little bit less than 4,000 delegates, so yep. we can't necessarily extrapolate really broadly here, but that's why the June 28th primary will just be so fascinating because we do have these stark contrasts yeah. in different candidates. 
Yeah, I mean, like you're saying, really small, really small sample size. But these are the issues that are motivating them, and these are the issues that are strongly shaping what candidates make the ballot. And so we'll we'll definitely be watching to see if this small part of the electorate has tapped into something that's more widespread among other Republicans and unaffiliated voters or not. And I think we'll have these clear choices June 28th. Yeah, it would be kind of interesting if all these candidates just get smacked down on the actual primary day and then all this hubbub turns out to have been for not much. Although it still is going to impact the general election, depending upon how the primary race goes, how much money is spent Mm -hmm. in in those races, will definitely impact November. Yeah, these are going to be some hotly contested primaries with very different candidates. Andrew Kenny, Ben to Berkland, and Purplish. Follow this and all of the episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including at CPR.org. Special thanks today to public affairs editor Megan Verlee, audio producer Shane Rumsey, education editor Allison Borden, and my Colorado Matters colleague Andrea Dukakis. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.